If you will, join me in Jonah, the book of Jonah, chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 17, and we will go all the way through to the end of chapter 2. The title of our sermon this morning is Three Days and Three Nights. Our key words for our worshipers in training are fish, resurrection, and prayer. Now, as Christians, one of the very real things that we need to come to grips with in this life, here and now, this life on earth, is that it is filled with difficulty, it is filled with trial, it is filled with pain, it is filled with suffering. At the same time, we have to remember that God is sovereign over all things at all times and he works providentially to bring about the ends that he has designed for his glory and for our good. The great pioneer missionary to Burma, Adoniram Judson, he dealt with these realities time and time again in his life and in his work alongside his family. In fact, were it not for Judson having a strong grasp of God's overcoming providence in all things, I don't know how he would have continued in his work the way that he did without losing his mind. He, he said himself, if I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. Judson married three times after each previous wife of his had died. His third wife also died before him. He labored for many years in Burma prior to ever seeing his first convert. The living conditions were terrible. The work was very difficult. He sought to learn the language and translate the Bible for the people of Burma. Judson's wives all shared something of his great confidence in God's providential care for them, even in the midst of all of the suffering they endured. His first wife, Anne, left, him, uh, left with him on a boat for Asia at the age of 23. Adoniram and Anne had three children together. All three of their children died. The first baby, who was nameless, was born dead just after they sailed from India to Burma. The second child, Roger Williams Judson, lived 17 months before he died. And the third, Mariah Elizabeth Butterworth Judson, lived to be two and outlived her mother by six months, and then she died. Now, when their second child died, Ann Judson wrote this, our hearts were bound up with this child. We felt he was our earthly all, our only source of innocent recreation in this heathen land. But God saw it was necessary to remind us of our error and to strip us of our only little all. Oh, may it not be vain that he has done it. May we so improve it that he will stay his hand and say, it is enough. Now, I've read and thought about Anne's words there many, many times. I'm still struck to the core by her unwavering confidence in the providence of God, his goodness and his purposes to constantly draw us onto himself in the midst of some of the darkest days of our lives. 
Sometimes that good that comes from God is a very painful good, but it is good nonetheless. We don't always know the reason for the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We don't always understand the trials that we endure and the suffering that we face, but we can know for certain that in the midst of them all, God is at work and God is good. God knows the end from the beginning and he has determined that all of it shall pass in the way that it does so that his purposes will be fulfilled and they will be fulfilled to his glory and ultimately for the good of all of his children. Do we as God's people, do we have Ann Judson-like confidence in God's providence no matter what the circumstances are that we endure? There are other times in our lives when we're in the midst of circumstances and we know full well why they are the way that they are. Because of our own sin, because of our own rebellion against God, our own unwillingness to submit to God's will, to walk in his ways. God lovingly disciplines those whom he loves that we might more readily say something along the lines of, of what Ann Judson said, God saw it necessary to remind me of my error and to strip me of my only little all. Oh, may it not be in vain that he has done it. How do you respond to the dark and difficult providences of your life? What is your response when all of the circumstances that come as a result of God's correction in your life are weighing on you in that moment? When God confronts you head on in your sin, how do you respond to it? This morning we're going to look at one of the most famous scenes in all of scripture as God sets his prophet Jonah back on track to fulfill his purposes that he has designed. We'll see God's providential work in using some very dramatic and very unusual circumstances to bring Jonah to the end of himself that he might remember God in his affliction and respond in repentance and obedience. We're going to look at a situation that all of us could look at and say, how would I respond in the midst of that? Would I respond like an Ann Judson and say, thank God that he has stripped me of all of myself that I might rely more fully on him? Or would we grumble and complain? We're going to see God at work in Jonah's life. And we'll begin in verse 17 of chapter 1. And we're looking all the way through the end of chapter 2. Now last week, as you recall, we looked through chapter 1. And we learned from Jonah that when God's people disobey, he brings correction into our lives. God disciplines those he loves We also consider the reality that our disobedience to God, our sin, is never, ever, ever just about us. It always involves other people. It affects all kinds of people. It's always going to have an impact on those around us and far more so than we ever could imagine on our own. So we're going to pick up where we left off in the narrative. Verse 17 of Jonah chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And this is the first thing I want us to see this morning, that even in our disobedience, God shows us mercy. 
Now recall back in chapter 1 in verse 12, Jonah told the sailors to throw him overboard. And in doing so, he knew that he was going to be able to accomplish two things. First, that the Lord was going to calm the tempestuous storm so that it would not destroy the sailors and all of their goods on the ship. And secondly, Jonah would die and he wouldn't have to go to Nineveh anymore. Now remember, for Jonah, that's the point of all of this. He was willing to die that he not have to go to the capital city of the Assyrians. It seems that in Jonah's mind, perhaps it was the perfect scenario. And surely as soon as they tossed Jonah overboard, the mariners were certain that their traveling companion was dead. They even feared, remember, that God would hold them responsible. And they prayed to God, asking him not to keep Jonah's blood on their hands. But what they didn't know, what was happening in the waters below. When Jonah was tossed to his death, the Lord sent a great fish. Not to devour him, but to preserve his life. Now, no doubt, we must admit, this is nothing short of miraculous. But not only is it miraculous, it also has a clear indication of God's mercy. In an instant, Jonah moves from receiving God's judgment of his sinful disobedience as he seeks to flee from God to being a recipient of the mercy of God, finding refuge in the harsh belly of a great fish. God is mighty. God has all the resources of creation at his hand, and he can turn a devouring fish into a safe refuge for his backslidden servant. John Calvin said of the fish, it was a sort of spiritual hospital for Jonah. And we'll see that in a minute, what he means by that. It was a time for him of healing and being revived and being sent out again for spiritual service. But I want to be clear, as as merciful as God was to Jonah to preserve his life, Jonah in no way deserved to be rescued by God. Indeed, this whole story is just as much about God getting what God wants as it is about preserving the life of his prophet. He wants Jonah to go to Nineveh, and it will happen. And also, don't think that God's mercy necessarily comes as pleasant. Just think of Jonah. He's sinfully running from God. He's cast into a raging sea, and now he's in the belly of a great fish. What could he possibly thought? What could have been going through his mind for three days and three nights in the belly of a fish? Surely he was riddled with a guilty conscience. He assumed at this point that he was as good as dead. It was only a matter of days. One commentator writes, the means employed for his preservation formed a kind of temporary death. But regardless of what Jonah thought, we know the whole story. God did not allow Jonah to receive what Jonah deserved. God's mercy abounded in his life. God rescued Jonah from the end in his own making. In other words, Jonah was, by all accounts, plunged to death. That there's no doubt that those mariners went home from their journey certain that they had seen a man die in the waters, there can be no doubt also that that's absolutely what Jonah deserved. But God had a greater plan. 
a plan not to harm Jonah, but to discipline him and then to use him for his purposes that he would receive the glory for it all. Now, what happened to Jonah should very quickly draw a parallel for all of us in those words. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish like the Lord Jesus spent three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. In both regards, there is a death and a resurrection. Jesus himself drew this parallel as he described his own resurrection that was yet to come. Hugh Martin writes, Jonah was in the judgment and by the hand of God put to death and brought to life again. His life was forfeited. It was canceled. And when after three days and three nights in the fish's belly, he was placed again on dry land, it was a new and fresh life on which he now entered. Substantially, Jonah underwent a death, a burial, and a resurrection. This is truly a picture of the gospel, isn't it? This is what happens in the life of a true believer. We're confronted in our sin. We're running away from God in our unwillingness to submit to his will and to his authority in our lives. This is some of you right now. Running from God, pursuing the things of the world, wanting nothing to do with what God calls you to. But then in God's mercy, we're brought to a place where we seem helpless and hopeless. We're at the end of ourselves and we don't know where to turn. And it's all to the point of saying, just throw me overboard that we can get over with this. I don't want it anymore. But God has another plan for his people. He has another way. With a giant, irresistible force, he sends the Holy Spirit to consume us, to put us to death, that we will live again in him alone. We are lowered to the depths of death and brought forward into the newness of life. That's the mercy of God, sustaining us, preserving us, giving us new life when all we deserve is death. And the only reason we can say this is because Christ was plunged to death on our behalf. He lived the life I couldn't live. He died the death I deserved And when I came to the end of myself and looked to Christ, I found life. I can live. I can say, I am alive. My friend, if you're not walking with Christ, I call on you this very day to stop running, to stop trying to hide from the presence of the Lord and to turn to him in repentance and faith that he might be pleased to consume you with his mercy and with his grace. Don't continue in the belly of death. The corrosive acid of sin will continue to destroy your ever-fading life and you will have no hope in the end. Cry out to Jesus that you will be raised to new life. He's willing. He's able. He calls you to repentance and faith. Well, chapter one closes the overview of the first part of this narrative. But then in chapter 2, we narrow in and go back into the belly of the fish, and we hear the prayer of the prophet. And the second thing we learn this morning is that disobedience leads to despair and humility. Let's read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. 
Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. One of the ways that God works in the lives of his children is to continually remind us that he is God and we are not. We need to be humble. Therefore, we need God to humble us. Humility, if we're all honest, is not a natural part of our lives. It is a fruit of the Spirit, which comes sometimes only through very difficult adversity and discipline that's brought to us by the Lord. And we see here with Jonah that he is brought to the absolute end of himself. And when a Christian has experienced a season of spiritual discipline and, and decline because we continue to run from the Lord, the very thing we need is humility. In this moment, when we are, are pursuing something other than Christ, we run and we flee and we seek to hide. We need to be knocked down by God and to be reminded who we are and who he is. Jonah felt absolutely crushed under the weight of his sin and the chastisement of his God. His language here in these first three verses is that of a man who feels that he has experienced death itself. But we do know that Jonah is truly repentant, and here's how. Notice, he's not making excuses. He's not justifying his sin. He's not turning and blaming others. It would be very easy, right? God, you know those Ninevites. You know what kind of people they are. They're going to crush Israel. I cannot be a part of them. I want nothing to do with them. I'm looking out for my fellow countrymen. And why am I in this predicament right now? Those sailors, those sailors, they, they tossed me overboard. They didn't care if I died. But that's not what we see in Jonah right now, is it? In fact, his, his prayer clearly identifies what all of this comes to in verse 3. For you cast me into the deep. Jonah is owning up to his sin and recognizing that it is God who put him there. He actually uses the covenant name of God in verse 2. This is the hand of the divine covenant-keeping God who has brought chastisement into my life. You did this, Lord. Now part of what Jonah is saying here is that God has every right to do what he does. He has every right to cast Jonah away from him, out of his sight. But he doesn't do that. He does exactly the opposite. In verse 2, I was in the belly of Sheol, of death, and I cried out, and you heard my voice. That's powerful. Jonah felt himself overwhelmingly crushed by the weight of his sin. He was in great despair, but... He was simultaneously humbled that God would bring him there for the sole purpose of bringing him back out again. What amazing mercy of God. Brothers and sisters, the only true way of repentance 
is through the recognition of our sinful state and the willingness and the ability to say, it's all my fault. We're not very good at this naturally, are we? How many times have you told someone you've sinned against them or screwed up big time and needed to be forgiven and it's all your fault? How many times have you looked at problems in your life, problems in your relationships, problems in your marriage and said, I'm the biggest problem. How many times do we really do that? Probably far less than we need to. And so often we hide behind silly things we say. It reveals the heart It reveals our desire to continue justifying our disobedience and our sin. We'll say things like, I'm really sorry that you think I'm at fault here. Oh, well, that clears everything up, doesn't it? Or, I'm really sorry that you took it that way. Sorry? I'm sorry? That can mean all kinds of different things, can't it? That's why it's important that we, like Jonah, are willing to say, Not I'm sorry, but the fault is mine. And that's why we ask for forgiveness. Will you please forgive me? Not, I'm sorry you didn't like that. You might as well say, I'm sorry I got caught sinning. I want to keep doing it. I'm sorry that you found out. That's not humility. A truly humble person will begin with the fault is all mine. And that's the first and most basic necessity for any true spiritual growth in the Christian life. Every single one of us who's a Christian, at some point we came into the Christian life by means of being shown that we are nothing, we are in need of repair, we are broken And the only one who can restore our lives is Christ. And the only way Christ will restore our lives is by us coming undone in ourselves and saying, it's all you, Lord, I can't do it. I'm at fault. I got me here. But yours is the way of life. I need you. I trust you. And only in you will I find strength and hope and refuge. I am filled with sin. Lord, will you forgive me? And in our proud, exalted states, we will only kick against God and his will for our lives. But in humility, we're able to close our mouths. And in our hearts, we can be assured, yes, it is me that's the problem right here. But you're never going to fix the problem by changing your behavior and doing new things, changing your patterns, Maybe going to church a little bit more. Maybe going here or there and saying this or that. This doesn't change a man. Only Christ can fix you. And only through true repentance. Only when you come to the very end of yourself and put yourself to death that you might live in Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian and you are walking in disobedience to the Lord in this area of your life, the only way forward is repentance. You must be emptied of yourself. You must be humbled by God, and that's not always pleasant. One way or another, if you are a child of God, you will be humbled. It may be by your submitting to the will of God and bowing your knee willingly. 
Or you may be thrown off a ship into the God-created storm to put you on your back so that you only have one option, and that is to look up. Brothers and sisters, if you are experiencing the corrective hand of the Lord today, turn from your sin that you might be restored. Don't wait. Don't be lazy about this. Yes, God will rescue his people, but we can never use that as an excuse to remain walking in disobedience. So we see here our disobedience leads to despair, but it also leads to humility. Are you living humbly before God, or are you simply living in fear and despair over the circumstances you find yourself in? Despair is designed by God to lead to humility and repentance. So be humble and repent. Well, the third thing we see is this. In our disobedience, we feel distant from God. But even then, he is there. Look at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down into the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. It's quite ironic here that Jonah, we read three times in chapter one, was running from the presence of the Lord. He thought God was too close. He was too near. He could see Jonah's actions. He knew Jonah's thoughts. He had spoken to Jonah and given him a very clear directive to go to Nineveh. And all of this was too close to home for Jonah. So foolishly, he ran away. Ah, But now Jonah's humbled by God. And in his humble estate, we see that God is not too near. But he's, he's seeing God as too far away. All of a sudden, he doesn't want to run away from God, but he wants to be very near to him. He's longing for the presence of God. Indeed, he seems so far off and so distant and so unreachable to Jonah, but he wants to draw close to him. And in these verses, you can almost sense that Jonah is being, being brought down and down and down further and further. The waters around me, they close around me. The weeds wrap my head and they pulled me in. The bottom of the mountains were pulling me down and down and down further and further away from God. I love the language of verse 6 because we see a sort of physical reality of what's going on with him spiritually. I went down in the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. As Jonah descended into the sea physically, the Lord brought him back out. And as he was drowning, the Lord rescued him. Likewise, as Jonah is drowning in his sin, the Lord rescues him. He brings him up out of the pit. And let's recall Jonah in chapter one, the sea captain, remember, had to wake him up. He was asleep. He was completely unmoved by the events all around him. And the captain pled with him, man, pray, pray. Why aren't you praying? You need to pray. But Jonah was silent. He offered no prayer whatsoever. 
I just imagine him standing there and staring at this man. He's, he's feeling cold and unmoved and yet has the guilt in his heart, completely unwilling to obey. He wasn't going to pray, but look at him now. Look at him now. All he can do is pray because he wants to be near to God. He says it three times in verse 2, I called out to the Lord. Verse 4, I shall look to your holy temple. Verse 7, I remembered the Lord. True repentance is revealed in a heart of prayer. While all of the circumstances which Jonah prayed are unique and unlike any that we will experience, and while his prayer may be very poetic and beautiful and ours not so much all the time, the content of what he is praying is nothing but ordinary for the Christian. If our prayers are not the same in terms of content, in terms of what we're communicating, not in the same way necessarily, but with the same heart, if that's not present in our prayers, we pray falsely. But do you see the change in our friend? Jonah in chapter 1, essentially putting his fingers in his ears and running away. Nah, 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 I don't want to hear it. But now, now his mind, his heart is filled with the word of God. Do you know what this prayer is? He's praying, what is he praying? Psalm after psalm after psalm. If I just cut this prayer out and gave that to you and asked you to find it in the Bible, you would find it in the psalms. Jonah is praying the word of God. His mind and his heart are filled with the word of God. He knows the word and he uses it in his prayer. He didn't want to pray before, but now all he can do is pray. He didn't want to hear the word of the Lord before. Now all he does is recites the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is why we're constantly emphasizing these things here. The word of God, reading it, memorizing it, meditating on it, hearing it preached, talking about it, studying it. And prayers, prayers of thanksgiving and repentance and adoration and praise and intercession. These are the simple means that God uses to restore the souls of his people. And we see it here with Jonah. Notice he doesn't say, I need to be sent away for a really great conference I need a celebrity pastor to speak into my life for a while so I can be revived. Now, what does he do? He prays and he meditates on the word of God. It's a gift that God has given to each and every one of his children. We don't need to go far off to find these things. It's right here. And these two things are a sure sign of spiritual health in the life of a Christian. When we are growing, when we are walking faithfully with the the Lord, these things, his word and prayer, will be ever-present. One of the things I absolutely love about brand new Christians is when I get to see their desire to fill all of the empty spaces. They don't know anything about God's word. And so they're just voracious when it comes to taking it in. Reading their Bible all the time, listening to sermons, reading good books, watching videos on a line of good preachers, just absolutely seeking to know more of God and his word. It's a sign of spiritual health. It's a sign of spiritual growth. And if we don't have a hunger to know more of God through his word, if we don't desire greater communion with God through prayer, we need to be asking our hearts some really important questions. 
It is the primary means that God has ordained for us to live in communion with him. And when we are spiritually healthy, we long for more, not less of his presence. And when we, when we feel like God is distant and far off, we're devastated. We want to draw nearer. And so it brings us to prayer. Because in our prayer, we're increasing in our communion with God. And it's all through Christ, our intercessor. And so we have to ask ourselves, do I hunger for God's word? Is it important to me? Do I long for more and more of it in my life? Am I always wishing more and more that I would know what God truly says? That's spiritual health. That's one of the very things that keeps us from seeking to find a hiding place away from the presence of God. If you've ever looked at the history of the two great awakenings uh, the, the major spiritual revivals in the United States, you'll notice two main things happened in these times. The first was that the people wanted to meet more regularly together for prayer. They all had an increasing desire to pray with one another, to gather with God's people for prayer meetings. The second was that the people could not get enough of God's word. So they were wanting to hear all the preachers they could. And they were, they were paying good money to have men travel from all over the country to come so that they could hear them preach. Wherever they were, they wanted to hear more of God's word. Brothers and sisters, if our affections are not stirred in the hearing of God's word, if we're always longing for things other than God's word, we have to humble ourselves and see our deficiency. We want God to give us grace like Jonah to cry out to him that we might draw nearer to him. We need God's word. We need prayer. We need to rely on God in these times that we would be humbled, that he would be near to us. Another lesson we learn from Jonah's life here is that the proper response to disobedience is repentance, worship, and obedience. Look at verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now notice in verse seven, uh, 4 and verse 7, Jonah mentions the holy temple. What is that all about? Well, in the days of Jonah, the only place that God promised his presence was in the temple in Jerusalem, right? So his thoughts are focused on worship. That's what he's saying here. And this is one of the things we can look at and say is far greater in the new covenant than in the old covenant. While God has always been omnipresent, he is always at all places in all times, his special felt covenantal presence with his people in the old covenant was restricted to the temple. But now in the new covenant, we look to Christ and his finished work on our behalf. So we understand something of what Jonah's communicating here. This is about worship. What do we do when we come to the end of ourselves and been humbled completely and have been the recipients of God's mercy even though we've sinned grievously against him? 
we repent, we worship, and we obey. And we see that here with Jonah, right? Jonah's affliction was for the sole purpose of driving away his disobedience and bringing him to repentance. It wasn't fun, but it was necessary. And it shifted his gaze to the holy temple in worship. The Puritan Patrick Fairburn writes this, We may certainly conclude of affliction generally. If it drives the heart from its idols, if it breaks the spirit of self-sufficiency, if it brings a man to his knees, it is an affliction sanctified for his spiritual good. And Jonah saw that. He saw that all that he endured was for his spiritual good. And we see then a change of heart and a change of mind. True repentance results in a changed heart and a changed mind. We see a heart of worship. And we see a desire for obedience. Notice in verse 8, as he's praying to God, he's now concerned for those who are chasing after vain idols in their lives. That's what happens to us, isn't it? When we really see what God has wrought in our lives, we can't help but want to see others walking with the Lord. Uh, The very people Jonah was running away from, now in a moment he sees their idolatrous ways. He sees their lost condition. He sees their brokenness. He's come to a sense in his own need for his salvation. And when that happens, he is now all of a sudden concerned for others. They're forfeiting the grace that could be theirs. And so he's filled with compassion for the very first time in this narrative. And going even further in verse 9, he tells the Lord that he will make good on what he promised. What I vowed, I will do. Brothers and sisters, can we look at our lives and say, as a Christian, I've sought to live faithfully unto the Lord. To love him, to worship him, to walk in all of his ways. Can we look at the law of God? Can we work through the Ten Commandments and say of each of them, by God's grace, with God's help, I'm seeking to live up to my vow. I want to make good on my vow. And what God rejects in his law, I reject with my life. What God commands in his law, I embrace with my life. That's what Jonah's doing here. He's not perfect. We're certainly going to see that as we continue with Jonah. But he is struggling to be oriented. He's in the fight to be oriented on the will of God, to walk faithfully in the will of God. And if we are to be faithful Christians, we will recognize that God has purchased us in Jesus Christ and we will long to live according to our vow, our vow to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength and to love our neighbors ourselves. Lastly, we see this. God is faithful to respond with mercy when we repent of our disobedience. Look at verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. A true faith receives God's discipline with open hands. And when we respond with thankfulness for all that God does for our good, There's great mercy upon our heads. Now, Jonah wasn't without a sticky, slimy, smelly mess upon him, but he was rescued. He was restored. He was back on course. He was back on dry land. 
Our sin will often carry consequences far beyond our repentance, but those consequences are a reminder to us that sin will always take us places we never wanted to go. But God is merciful. God will restore. God will be gracious. Friends, there are some of you here this morning who think that you need to have all of your life cleaned up before you're ready to come to God, to cry out to Christ that you would find life in him. You see, the problem is you will never be clean enough. There's never a good enough on our part before God. None of us are good enough for God. That's why we need Christ. That's why all of us need to continually remind ourselves my only hope in life and death is Christ. Not my good works, not my deeds, but Christ. And God's not waiting for sinners to be good before he saves them. God's bringing sinners to a place where they say, I'm not good enough and I can't be good enough, but Christ is And it is Christ's righteousness that I need, that I can stand before God, that I might have any hope of everlasting life in him alone. Friends, if you're running from God, I'm pleading with you, come to the end of yourself, be humbled before God, cry out to him in repentance, and find true hope and faith and assurance in him alone. I hope all of us will commit in our hearts today to reaffirm before God our faithfulness to him. And when we sin, I pray that all of us, instead of seeking to run, that we will immediately go to God in repentance. Remember, in our disobedience, God shows us mercy. He's not harsh to us. He's like a loving father. He disciplines us but he shows us love and care and compassion and sets us back on course. We may be humbled by God. We may feel despair. We may feel like he's far away from us, but rest assured, child of God, he is there. He is there and he loves you. So instead of running, let's live lives of repentance. Let's live lives of worship. Let's live lives of thankful obedience to all he has commanded. And we can know that he is faithful and he will respond to us with mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your mercy. We're thankful for the means that you have given us to cry out to you in repentance when we disobey and that you are faithful to restore us, that you are faithful to bring us to the end of ourselves, that we recognize we are not what we make ourselves out to be. We'll never be good enough. But Christ is perfect, and in all of his perfections, we can rest, and we can find hope, and we can find satisfaction, and we can find assurance. And so I pray, God, For those of us in Christ, that you would strengthen us and cause us to persevere in the Lord and our faithfulness that we have vowed as your children to walk in. For those who are your children who are walking in disobedience, I pray, God, that you would humble them, that you would bring your fatherly discipline upon them, that they would see that they're walking in sin and there's a great need for repentance. 
to turn around and to be set back on course. And for those who live apart from Christ, I pray, God, you would crush them in their self-sufficiency, in their self-righteousness, in all of their idolatry, and that you would bring them to a place where they recognize all that they've sought to do on their own is useless, it is vain, it does not provide what they are seeking. Lord, bring them to the very end of themselves that they would look only to Christ, their only hope in life and in death. God, be glorified. And we ask all of this in the holy and precious name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.